0: All right, we are in the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we are on the downside of the hill. And uh, Manuel Munoz is our reader this morning, so Manuel, if you'll come up here, and uh, we'll get you ready to read. You're going to read off the screen, so don't worry about your phone. You're good. Welcome, Manuel, this morning. All right, Mark chapter 10, verse 35. There it is, right there for you. Read for us. And you all follow along on the screen as um, Manuel reads for us.
1: Uh, And uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to set one at your right hand and one on your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. You are able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left, it's not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And Jesus called to them, uh, them to him, and said to them, "You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over uh, them, and they and their great ones exercise authority over them. And it shall be, uh, shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant." And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, in a great crowd, uh, Barthimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting at the roadside. And when he heard that the that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And then Jesus stopped and said, call, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing all off his cloak, he sprung up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man uh, said to him, Rabbi, let me receive my sight, recover my sight. And uh, Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him all the way, on the way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Amen. Thank you, Emmanuel. Appreciate that. All right. So you may be wondering, what do these two stories have to do with one another? Um, the, the, you'll see the great connection between them. As Mark, Mark likes to create sandwiches where he has a story, a teaching, and a story, and then shows how all the three work together. And we're going to show you that here this morning. But one of the things that this, this story does for me, like many things in the gospel, it proves to me that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. A lot of people think, oh, well, the Bible was written and retranslated so many times. How do we know it's true and all that stuff? And they're not even trying to pay attention to what's happening here. Let me just give you several proofs that I know that the Bible is the Word of God. Number one, if you listen to last week's message, I went over about a dozen prophecies of Jesus' crucifixion, where we're talking as much as 700 years. They said the Messiah will come and he will do all these things. And Jesus fulfilled how many of them? all of them. Who, who does that? Who predicts the future with 100% accuracy? That tells us that these, these prophets are receiving the Word of God because they could not humanly do that on their own. Um, another proof that I know the Bible is the Word of God is the science that's in the Bible. And some people say, well, I don't, I don't believe in Christianity. I believe in science. I'm like, well, then you're not paying attention to the Bible. The Bible is full of science. Let me give you just one example. Benjamin Franklin discovered a lot of principles of electricity you know, right around 240 years ago. Okay, things that people didn't know for thousands of years, Benjamin Franklin and other people discovered about electricity, you know, and then after that with the light bulb and other things were invented. But the Bible knew a whole lot of electricity thousands of years ago. For example, Job, which is the oldest book in the Bible, okay, we're talking written almost 4,000 years ago, not just a couple hundred years ago, Benjamin Franklin, we're talking 4,000 years ago. Okay, if, if you know anything about electricity, What we know now is that the negative charges on the earth are interacting with the positive charges in the the storm cloud, and what happens is the negative charge goes up, and then we see a positive charge come down. And Job said that God creates a path for the lightning to come down. The negative charge goes up, so the lightning comes down. We always thought that just a positive charge comes down, positive charge comes down. And then we discovered there's an invisible negative charge that's a pathway. And guess what? The lightning fills that path. And what you see on the screen there is all the negative charge is being filled by a positive charge. And Job spelled it out exactly 4,000 years ago. We go on and on with other scientific things about the Bible. That's just one example. Um, And actually, let me give you another one before I go to that one. Um, One that I meant to put down. Archaeology confirms the Bible over and over again. There's a magazine called Biblical Archaeology and every month they come out with all these new things that are being dug up all the time which the news won't tell you about. For example, about 26 years ago skeptics always say Abraham couldn't have been a real character because in the Ur of the Chaldees that part of Babylon, northern Babylon, they didn't even have people named Abraham. Abraham's an Anglo name. That's a white man's name. There's no way. They just, inter- they just white guys made up this character about Abraham and made up this whole story about him. And there, there was no such name as even Abraham that we've discovered in archaeology. Well, 26 years ago, they discovered what's the equivalent of the Ur of the Calde's phone book. And guess what name was most popular? Abraham. It's all over. It was a very extremely common. It would be like the name John or Juan today. And so archaeology, why did they always say, well, the Bible must not be true because we haven't found it yet. And then when they found it, did they ever go back and retract it and say, oh yeah, guess the Bible was right. No, of course they don't. They're looking and they're wanting for the Bible not to be true. Okay. And here, when, I, when it comes to this story, one of the proofs of inerrancy is if skeptics are right and these 11 disciples decide, let's make up a religion. Let's say that Jesus actually rose from the dead and we worship him as God and all that stuff like that. So let's write this. Peter, you write something. Have Mark write it down for you. And Matthew, you write something. And John, you write something. And let's, let's get together and, and let's coordinate these stories. Do you think that these 11 guys would say, and let's make us look like idiots, just total idiots. Yeah, write down that I sunk in the water and I denied Jesus three times. Go ahead and put that down. Would you make yourself look like total idiots that the disciples look like over and over and over again? No. Why are they writing this down? Because it happened, and they have to tell the truth, because they know the Savior did resurrect and forgave all their stupidity. And so you see the disciples in this story, what are they doing? Think about what just happened, okay? Um, James and John, and, and who completes the inner circle? James, John, and Peter, right? That's the inner circle. Okay, these are guys who are tight with Jesus. These are the ones who, when Jesus ever has something important to pray about, says, "Hey, you three, come on with me. Let's pray. You guys stay here and pray." And I'm sure the others are like, "What? (laughs) You know, we're not the BFFs. What's wrong with it? Why are we not included?" But anyway, James and John, again, if they wanted to make themselves look good, they would have said, "Hey, please don't write that in there." If we're going to make up a religion, we have to look like heroes, right? You know, think about the Quran. Does Muhammad ever look stupid? No. But yet the disciples who didn't make up religion make themselves look stupid, okay? That, that, to me, that looks skeptical. But anyway, um, one of the things, what just happened was, if you remember last week, Jesus set, is walking with a vicious pace to Jerusalem. Because he says, I've told you three times now, guys, I'm going there to die. And then, and then the last time he tells them, but, in three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. So they're all scared and they're all nervous about it. But Jesus just told them, I'm about to die. And James and John says, hey, Jesus, would you do something for us? We want to be right and left hand on you, whatever. And like, were you not listening to whatever I said? It's just like if, if, a, if so, a good friend called you and said, hey, I, w- I want to have dinner. I have something important I want to talk to you about. And over lunch, they say, um, I just got back from the doctor and I've been diagnosed with stage four cancer. And I've only been given 60 days to live. And you go, um, are you going to finish those chips? I mean, it's just about as cold-hearted as what they're asking here. They're like, oh yeah, you're going to die. Hey, can we be in power? Can we be sitting on your right and left hand? And so um, they were, James and John were also in the fishing business with their father Zebedee, remember that? And Peter was business partners with them, and they walked away from all that. And so you, you look at these guys, and there's several things we can learn about. Number one, the, the fishing business there, they walked away from that, Give them credit. Now, we do have reason to believe that they delegated the business and it kept running because they talked about, let's just go back to it. Peter said, I think I'm going to go back to fishing. So he had something to go back to, but they still made a sacrifice nonetheless. Number two, they were um, part of the inner circle. We talked about Peter, James, and John. If you, how many of you grew up as kids singing Peter, James, and John a sailboat? Anybody remember singing that? No, a few of you, right? Okay, cool. That was good. Um, in, Mark, in Mark chapter 3, verse 17 they were, Jesus calls them the sons of thunder. And many people, and like you see that in the chosen, it kind of thinks that because they wanted to call down lightning from fire from heaven, like Elijah did when these, when these uh, Gentiles were giving them a hard time. So I don't think the nickname was much of a compliment, you know, sons of thunder. Thunder doesn't do anything. It just sounds loud and ominous, but never does anything. It's lightning that actually gets the job done. Um, and they, they were the ones in Luke 9 that wanted to call fire down from heaven. So sometimes they were not very merciful. And their mother, according to when Matthew tells the story, he adds a detail saying the mother was also asking. So she's part of this equation there. Um, and she's, you know, still being a mom, you know, treating them as mama boys, which some parents still do. But anyway, so it says, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Here's a blank check. Would you please sign it? Really awkward, isn't it? I mean, I, I don't know if I know this. I've tried to study as this. this was as a cultural thing, you know. Sometimes your kids will do that. Dad, I want to ask you something, but please just tell me you'll say yes. You know, because they know what they're asking is, is really questionable or sketchy, right? Um, what did Jesus get done by telling them what was about to happen? What did Jesus just get done telling them? I'm going to die. And, and this is what they're asking for. Jesus, would you give us whatever we want? It's like they know they shouldn't be asking that question. Have you ever had that happen where you're like, my kids will say this. I know I probably shouldn't say this, but, and I'm like, so you're going to go ahead and say it anyway? <laughs> you know, and uh, husbands, we, you, when you feel that, when you're in an argument with your wife, and you're like, I probably shouldn't say this, don't. Okay, you're going to regret it. Just don't, don't say that. Whatever the Holy Spirit or your conscience is telling you, zip it. It's a good job to listen. Nine out of ten times, you will, you will regret what you're about to say. But um, so they say, see, we're, Jesus, here's what Jesus told them. He said, I'm going to be delivered over. I'm going to be condemned. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be spit upon. I'm going to be whipped. And I'm going to die. And you're like, can we be in positions of power? Can you identify with the disciples some? I think we can be very insensitive people at times, all of us, and our selfishness makes us deaf to what's being said around us. I think there's conversations where we're having somebody and they're really hurting, but we're so busy thinking of what we're going to say next that we're not absorbing what God is trying to show us. I think we all could afford to be better listeners, amen? And so oftentimes what's making us so selfish, what's making us so deaf is our selfishness. But you know what Jesus does? Instead of rebuking them, saying, you selfish pigs, I just told you I'm going to die, and you're saying, can we be in power? He had every right to do that. But Jesus being compassionate, guy that he is, patient. You know, when 1 Corinthians 13 lists what love is, what is the very first thing on the list? Love is patient. And Jesus shows incredible patience here. And he says, okay, what do you want me to do for you? on the inside, he's probably like, I just told you I'm going to die. You should be saying, well, Lord, what can we do for you? How can we help? But no, it's okay. What can I do for you? And I'm not saying Jesus is not being sincere. This is not a sarcastic statement. He's not being Gary here, exercising spiritual gift of sarcasm. He is being the compassionate Jesus that we know and love. And you know, we've had situations, all of us, where we're a really tense moment, whatever, and someone asks him, how can you even ask me that? I'm going through a lot right now. But Jesus is like, no. Well, okay, what can, I, what can I do for you? Incredibly unselfish. He's the, the exact opposite of what the disciples are doing. So here's the request. Grant us to sit. The word sit means to be seated on a throne. When someone ascends to the throne, once they're seated, they're officially a ruler, they're a king, they're a prince, they're a princess, whatever it is. Sitting means install us in an office. We want to be one at your right hand and one at your left. Notice they didn't say who. I think they're still arguing about that. But there's, okay, well, let's just agree that one of us will be one and one at the other, and we'll, we'll argue about it later. Okay. And right hand and left hand could be like vice president and secretary of state. That's probably the equivalence of what they're talking about here. And that's what they're asking for. And, and notice that what they're doing here is nothing new. In fact, I think this has been going on for a while. We go backwards here. Mark chapter 9, just the last chapter ago, he asked them, what, what were you guys talking about? And we're discussing it. What were you debating about on the road? Because they were trying to keep it away from Jesus. But they, they kept silent because they are embarrassed. Because on the road they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. I'm going to be the vice president. No, no, I'm going to be vice president. But I walked on water. Yeah, but you sank. And there's all this arguing back and forth. just so like, hey, guys, what are you talking about? Oh, nothing. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. That's what they were talking about. Who is the greatest? What's the answer to that question? Who's the greatest? Jesus. They should be having their discussion about how great Jesus is. It's amazing. Let me just tell you something God can do amazing things in Revolution Church if nobody cares who gets the credit. If we're constantly focused on Jesus and he gets the glory, and nobody's saying, well, I did all this. Nobody even thanked me. Good. Greater is your reward in heaven because nobody thanked you. That's, that's the way it works in the kingdom. Mark ten thirty-eight says, and Jesus said to him, you do not know what you're asking. You have no clue what you're asking for. You think that when I ascend to my throne, it's going to be all power and glory and might. When I ascend to my throne, I will, when I'm lifted up, the crown they put on my head is not gold. And where I'm going to be seated is not on a throne, but on a cross. That's how I'm going to become king of the universe, by dying for you. You have no clue what you're asking for. And and we do that all the time with God with our prayers. We ask for things and God's like, if you let me gave that to you, you wouldn't be able to handle it. But God still hears our prayers. Isn't that amazing? God is very patient. It's like your kids when they say, can I eat the Snickers before dinner? You're like, no, honey, I'll let you eat it afterwards, you know. And you just have patience with them and you work with them. And he says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Okay, so the cup, there's there's several images involved with this. Number one, uh, Nehemiah in the Old Testament, he was a cup bearer for the king. What does that mean? Political enemies often were wanting to kill the king. So the cup bearer, guess what he got to do? He sipped the wine an hour before dinner before the king did. He tasted the steak. He went through everything and he took, he sampled everything before the king ate. And then after, if there was no symptoms for a while, they're like, okay, yeah, it's good to eat. What a job. You talk about laying down your life for someone. And here's the cool thing. Nehemiah, after his conversion, continued to be the cupbearer. He continued that job. He didn't say, well, I'm a Christian now. I can't do this anymore. You know, he he continued to do what he was doing. Um, So to be a cupbearer, oftentimes when there was, they would let a victim, especially a political victim, choose their method of death. Do you want to be hung? Do you want to be pierced through with arrows? Do you want your head cut off? You, what do you want? Or do you, I'll, I'll, I'll take a cup of poison. And often they would drink a cup of poison. And you can read about things like that in Shakespeare. So what did Jesus pray in the garden? Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. In other words, I'm about to drink death. I'm about to die. Now, Do not read into the story what Jesus isn't saying here. He's not chickening out. And I believe firmly that he is not talking about fear of nails, fear of beating, fear fear of, of crown of thorns. What he dreads most is the father turning his back on him. And that separation, which has never, ever, ever happened in all of eternity. And now all of a sudden the two, father and son, will be separated because Jesus will be bearing the sins of the world. And the father in his holiness will turn his back on him. This, I believe, with all my heart, is what Jesus is dreading. But he's, he's, so he's not saying, I'm not willing to die. He's just saying, if I can die without being separated from you, because I love you so much. Think about that. That's amazing. This is what Jesus said. And these guys are like, hey, we want to send with you on your throne. You really want to drink that cup? Is that really what you think you want to do? And then he says, and the baptism, which I, will be, I am baptized. Now, baptism literally means immersed. So it even talks about that the children of Israel were baptized under Moses. They were placed under his authority. Just like when we baptize someone, they're placed under the water. It just means to be placed under or to be immersed with something. He says, do you really want to be put into the situation I'm about to be put into? And and this could even refer to the death, the burial, because baptism is a picture of a burial. Do you really want to die with me? Are you willing to die? This type of death. He talks about the baptism. It's a specific type of baptism. And so, and and then of course in their cockiness and their brazen, oh yeah, we're able. And again, they still have no clue what they're asking, nor do they have any clue what Jesus is talking about, because I don't think they're truly listening. First Corinthians 10, 12 says, therefore, let, if anyone and you and me could put our names in there who thinks that he stands, oh, I got this, I got this, take heed lest you fall. I, I like to watch videos of like boxers who like to talk trash before a fight and they get knocked out cold. <laughs> like, yeah, you had that coming, you know, and we would say pride, we always quote it wrong. We always, say, we always say pride goes before a fall. It's actually a haughty spirit goes before a fall and pride goes before destruction, but we, we mix the two together. But you see that happen all the time. Where in our overconfidence, oh, I got this, I got this, and then boom, slip, trip, and fall, and you're on America's Funniest Home Videos, you know? Cockiness can get the best of all of us where we think we're doing all of it right. I remember one time I was playing, uh, my senior year I was playing soccer. I played for a very small school, no big deal. And because I didn't grow up playing soccer, I didn't have the, the great foot skills all the other guys had, but I was tall and athletic, so I was the goalie which I loved playing goalie. It was a lot of fun. And so we were playing one of our arch rivals, Episcopal High School, and they, were, uh, they had gone to like the state championship a couple of years before, and they were much bigger than us and much better than us most of the time. But we are up two to nothing, and we're in the last couple minutes of the game, and I have a shutout going. They're, they're getting good shots, but I'm blocking them. I'm doing all this stuff, and our team's playing great defense, and everything's going great, and I'm about to get a shutout against one of the best schools that we, we play. And A guy hit, about midfield, hit a long lead pass to a guy, but he hit it too far, so it was coming to me and it was rolling, and I ran up to it, and if if you play goalie, just like a shortstop, you need to put a knee down and both hands down and handle the ball. But in my overconfidence, I just kind of went halfway down like this, and the wet ball went right through my fingers, and I turned around and dove, and it went into the goal, and my shutout was blown. We won two to one, but no shutout because Gary was, I got this, you know, and that's a a minor illustration of life. There's more serious situations where we think, I got this, and it could be nothing but trauma. It could cost you a job. It could cost you a marriage. It could cost you your good name in the community, just because you may think, I got this. And this is what the disciples, Jesus says, hey, the cup I'm about to drink, the baptism I'm about to be placed in, I'm not sure you can handle this. Oh yeah, we, we are, we're able. We're able we're able. And again, before we jump too much on the disciples, we need to see ourselves. So self-centeredness can, self-centered can cause a lot of issues. Number one, it makes you impatient. Couldn't they wait waited for a better time to ask this question? Are they in that much of a hurry that they have to know now? Have you ever noticed that our wanting to know just can sometimes kill us? It's like, I, I don't know. You just call him, ask him, whatever. whatever. We just push and push and push. I'm like, wait, can't we just wait till Monday? Like he said, he calls Monday. Why do we have to push for this answer? Why, why do we get so impatient? If you find yourself really like pushing and trying to manipulate circumstances to find out what's happening, you probably are, are suffering from self-centeredness. It also makes us self-promoting. James and John didn't say, Hey, Lord Jesus, can you put Peter and Bartholomew on the throne next to you? They weren't advocating for someone else. Who are they advocating for? For, for themselves. Self-centeredness can definitely make us that way. Proverbs twenty-seven, one. This is a verse that I want everybody to apply, but good luck, okay? <laughs> do not boast. We could just stop right there. Don't, what does boast also mean? Brag, right? Do not boast about tomorrow, which we always do. Oh yeah, we're going to kill that team. Isaiah, how many times have we said that and lost, right? <laughs> Where we get overconfident. I, we, we, I coached Isaiah's team and And uh, we would see another team warming up, and they'd be like, "Oh, look at that! They're not even as tall as us. They're not look. They just missed three layups. Oh, we're going to kill this team!" And boom, we lose. Overconfidence with it. Don't boast about things. You don't don't know what uh, tomorrow may bring, okay? And then here's the here's the key. Here's what I want you to try this. Just I won't even say this week. Try this for this afternoon. Let another person praise you, and not your own mouth. Today, don't say anything positive about yourself. Period. I'm not saying talk trash about yourself. I'm not saying talk down. Just don't say anything about it. Okay? So, if, um, who should I pick on this morning? (laughs) Um, I'll I'll pick on Charles, okay? So, if Charles came to me and said, oh, yeah, Gary, I I played tennis in high school. Yeah, I'm really good. I'd be like, is he really good or is he just bragging? But if Greg comes to me and says, hey, uh, Charles and I played tennis the other day, man, he crushed me. Who am I going to believe? I'm going to believe Greg because he's the third party that has no hunt and no dog in the hunt, but Charles may be one try to impress me. But if someone else tells somebody how good you are at something, it's more believable. But when you try to talk about how good you are, and we have our, our soft ways of subtly doing, we we've mastered the the pseudo humility in it. You know, like I'm around, I, I hang around pastors, you know, and I can always tell a pastor. We say, "Yeah, I'm going to a conference next week." And then some will say, I've been asked to speak at a conference next week. I'm like, okay, so you're telling me you can't go next week because you're at a conference, but why did you have to add the detail, I've been asked to speak? Why? Just because you want to know you're important, right? You know? And so it's interesting how we say things so that people are impressed by it. You know, I'm not saying we can never say anything, but we have to be super careful with it. So just try that for the next 24 hours, okay? Okay. Self-centeredness has a strong way of making us insensitive to others, to where other people are hurting and we're really not seeing it. We're not, we're not catching it. Here Jesus is saying, guys, my days are numbered. I'm about to go through the worst week, worst few days any man has ever gone through. Yeah, 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 Jesus, but can we sit on your right and left hand? I think we can be that way. We can. I, I remember one family member of mine, well, uh, we're unnamed would, would have a, a habit of talking to relatives, and one time, one of my daughters said, "I told them something bad that happened," and they're like, "Okay, good, great, great, awesome, awesome, glad to hear," and they're like, "You weren't even listening, were you?" But they didn't say that. But they could tell. I just told them bad news because everything along the way, they were like, oh yeah, good, good. Yeah, yeah, great, great, awesome. And it was just like they were doing something else, maybe still typing on the computer or whatever. And when they told them the bad news, they said, oh yeah, great, great, awesome. Anyway, we need to be where we're a whole lot more sensitive to what's going on around us. And number four, it can make you overconfident. They said, oh yeah, we're able, we're able. So what makes us self-centered? Where does that come from? It comes from losing your focus on the gospel. If you serious, you see, we, we used to think that the gospel is something that lost people need to hear to be saved. And yes, that is true. But th- we don't stop hearing the gospel. The gospel is what every husband needs to hear to be more compassionate with his wife. The gospel is what every wife needs to hear to be more understanding to the husband. Did, did you wake up every day and say, I am a sinner who needs a Savior, and Jesus died for all the stupid things I did? Man, He is amazing. I love you, Lord. How can I show my love to you? And Jesus says, go love everybody else. You know how I was patient with you? Go be patient with everybody else. The more that we soak in the gospel every day, I am so thankful I'm saved. Oh my gosh, I did not deserve this. I cannot believe that I get to walk in grace and that there's no condemnation in me because of Christ. Oh, how does that person even live that way? Wait, wait, what? You were that person. (laughs) Well, I didn't do that. Well, you did your thing. Okay? And we all want to justify our thing over their thing. We know they're both wrong, but somehow theirs is more wrong than ours is wrong. You really soak in the gospel. That's why it's so wonderful that we take the communion. Somebody broke their body for me? Someone shed their blood for me? How can I not show kindness to somebody on the street if someone did all this for me? Focus on the gospel and you will you will disintegrate self-centeredness. So they, Jesus said to them, saying, okay, so the cup that I drink, you're going, you are going to drink it. You just don't know what, you really don't know what it is. You're going to die. In fact, um, James, guess what? You're going to be the first of the disciples to die. And John, you're going to get to see all the others die, and then you're going to be exiled to an island to be by yourself. So you're going to experience a whole lot of hard times. And you know what? That baptism, you, you don't really know what you're asking for, but yeah, you're going to go through it too. And you're, you're going to suffer just like I've suffered. And, and John, you're going to, they're going to beat you for, and leave you for dead more than several times before they, uh, they exile you to an island. Acts chapter 12, verse 1 tells us that James was the first to go. And he was the brother of John. John got to see, or at least hear about his brother dying. So he's like, yeah, you guys are going to taste what I taste, but it's not what you're thinking it is. He said, but... To sit about my right hand on my left is not mine to grant. Jesus was, in, in his human form, was in total submission to the Father. And he, Jesus even said, I don't even know when I'm supposed to come again. The second coming. Nobody knows. Not even the Son of Man, but the Father only. Now, I believe once Jesus ascended, the Father told him, or, whatever, or he resumed that. But Jesus was playing one hand behind his back by being human. So he absolved some of his omniscience then, okay? Some of it, because we know he didn't give up all of it, because he kept over and over, the New Testament says, and Jesus knew their thoughts. So Jesus does know everything, but at times he relinquished that privilege in his humanity. And I know, I can't give a more detailed answer now because it's complicated. But he said, but for those, those for whom it has been prepared, okay, to sit on my right and left hand, it's for those it's been prepared. Now, I do believe the apostles will be exalted in heaven. I believe that the reason there's 24 seats of the elders around the throne is 12 for the 12 tribes and 12 for the 12 apostles. Okay, that's my theory on that. But I think there's even more to it than that. So who will sit at Jesus' right and left hand in the millennial kingdom? Again, probably the disciples and, and the, 12, the leaders of the 12 tribes. But Jesus did allude. If Jesus' first throne was the cross, who was on his right and left hand then? thieves. He's like, oh, is this what you're asking for? You want to be these two guys? That's what you're asking for? You really don't know what you're asking for. So I believe that Jesus was referring to these guys because it was prepared for them. And of course, the great story about these two guys is, at first, they're both railing on Jesus, right? But then when Jesus said, after the, the, the Roman soldiers, uh, they give them vinegar to drink and they're treating them badly, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do one of was like, whoa, wait a minute. He really is who he says. I've never seen powerful forgiveness like that. Now think about that. What do your kids see? Do your kids see mom and dad forgiving each other, even though they don't deserve it? When they behold that kind of love where, oh my gosh, mom just forgave dad for that. Wow. They really are the real deal. That's when this one said, you know what? Hey, over there, you shut up. We're getting what we justly deserve here. This man has done nothing. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Man, isn't that amazing? This is who was exalted to his right and left hand at first. So, and so when the ten heard it, so James and John asked for this request, they began to be indignant. I mean, they are furious at James and John. Not because they would dare ask such a thing, but because they asked first, <laughs> they beat them to the punch. Like, man, we were holding off to ask that question until after Jesus kind of got over his whole martyr syndrome, you know, whatever that death stuff's about. I don't know. But we were going to at least have enough tact to ask. Can't believe you asked now. And, and, and of course, they are mad at someone else for beating them at the very thing that they were going to do themselves. We, we do that in our self-righteousness, don't we? And so, um, and Jesus called them then. So, so the 12 were following Jesus on the road, and then there's other followers. We, we read from last week from the Easter, okay? Jesus has the crowd, I believe, stop and say, hey, guys, come here, let me teach you something. He pulls them aside. I know what you're asking for, but let, let me talk to you about this. You, you, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they really lord it over them. They, they're just bossy. Have you ever had this happen in a job at, a, at a work where someone gets a promotion and it just goes to their head? And all of a sudden they just reeking with power and like, oh, because I said so, blah, blah, blah. And they're just just vicious, just become rude and full of power. Some people can't handle power. They have no business being in management. And usually they, they tell on themselves in the first few weeks. But, but the Gentiles, these lost people, you know how they, when they're given authority, they just lord it over people. And, and they're great ones. They exercise authority. The word exercise means like almost like exercising a demon. They're just like ravage about it. And, they, and they, they lord it over, like they constantly remind you, I'm in charge. You know, me, you, me, you. They just constantly with that kind of thing right there. And so in verse 43, it says, but it shall not be so among you. You guys, I'm calling you as Christian leaders to be the exact opposite. In fact, if you want to be great, and Jesus doesn't say, don't try to be great. He says, if you want to be great, if, whoever will be great among you, let him be your servant. You should be going around saying, what can I do to help you? Well, I'm the manager here. Yeah. You should be asking your employees, what can I do to help you? What can I do to make you a better employee? What can I do to make your job more productive? I won't say easier, but more productive. Yesterday, we had our first staff meeting with our part-time staff. So Nathan, Matt, and Tammy, we had our first staff meeting, and I told them right off the bat, I said, we want to set the culture for 50 years from now, Revolution Church, whoever's the next pastor, whoever's the next worship leader, whoever's the next children's ministry, whoever's the next technology guy, That we have the culture of what can I do to serve you? Do not take this part-time gig as in, oh, I've arrived now. I was picked because I'm more spiritual than everybody else. No, no. You were picked because your job is important. And this gives you a greater opportunity to serve these people even more. And that's the culture of our, that should be the culture of our church as a whole. He uh, he goes on to say, say it starts off as a servant. But then he says, what? If you want to be first among you, you must be the slave. He goes down further. That the more you follow Christ, the better leader you become. The more you go lower. You go from servant to slave. You, you end up doing even more dirty jobs. I, I remember, um, and no, I won't tell that story. Never mind. I don't want to throw man under the bus. <laughs> Verse 45 says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The Son of Man, the most exalted title that Jesus has, says, I didn't come to earth to be for you to do everything for me. I'm here to do for you. Wow. And, and, and how did he exercise that more than ever? In the next couple of days, he would wash their feet. Amazing. He came to serve, to give, and to give what? His life a ransom for man. Now, when we think of ransom, what do you think of today? If you heard the word ransom, what would you think of? Money, but what would be the situation? Kidnapping, right. That's not what this is talking about here. Okay. This is talking about someone's a slave, and you ransom them you purchased their freedom. So you could purchase their freedom with, you know, 200 denarii, you know, maybe a chest full of gold. Or maybe you would say, hey, here's one of my slaves. I'll trade you and you would ransom, whatever it may be. Jesus didn't use money or someone else. He gave himself to give you freedom. And now the custom was in those days, if someone bought your freedom and you, they would say, OK, hey, you're free to go. Really, What? what, what happened? Someone just paid for your ransom. Really? I'm free to go. Yes. The question you should be asking first, well, who, who did it? Say, well, it was, it was Timotheus over there. You run to Timotheus, you bow down and say, I give my life to you. You, you just gave everything for me to, I'm free now, but I'm free to serve you. That would have been customary. We see that, you know, in Aladdin, you rub the lamp, you know, and stuff like that. And, and they, and people who, or someone who rescued someone, oh, I give my life to you, whatever. And that's, that's good in stories, but this was reality. And so what should be the response of every blood-bought Christian? We, in our freedom, we run away from the slavery, we run to Jesus, we bow down and say, I give my life to you because you gave your life for me. So we, we talked about self-centeredness and how it makes us impatient, self-promoting, insensitive, and overconfident. But what does servant-centeredness do? What if instead of promoting self, we promote servitude? What would that do for us? Number one, it'll make you Wait over and over, and the scripture says, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Be patient. When you have a servant attitude, you're patient. You're like, okay, well, I can wait. I'll do other things while I'm waiting. And you just become more and more patient when you look to serve others. Number two, it makes you self-forgetful. There's, Tim Keller has a new booklet out. I recommend you get it if you can. In fact, I'm thinking of buying a bunch of them in bulk and just hand them out. It's talking about the blessing of self-forgetfulness, that we're not asking you to disparage yourself, and we're also saying, don't promote yourself. Just forget yourself. Be so consumed with, what can I do for them? What can I do for her? What can I do for him? What can I do for all them? That you are thinking about others so much, you don't even have time to think about yourself. It's not like you think, oh, I'm horrible. I'm, I'm just miserable. I don't deserve anything. No, no, that's just as self-centered in a reverse way. But you're so obsessed with, what can I do? I am here to serve, that you're forgetting about your own needs. Number three, it makes you, when you're servant-centered, it makes you sensitive to others. You start becoming a much better listener. You actually hear the pain in what people are trying to say. And number, I think the disciples, if they weren't so self-centered, would have heard, would have sympathized with Jesus, right? You know, Jesus, wow, that that must be rough. How can we help you? What can we do? And I even think about in the garden, he says, hey, my hour has come and, and, and it's weighing on me heavy. Can you guys at least pray with me one hour? one hour. And of course, what did they do? They, they, they fell asleep. And servant-centeredness makes you humble. It makes you not think of your, think less of yourself, but think of yourself less. If you ever get a chance to read anything by Francis Schaeffer, please do so. He wrote a really famous book that's still used in seminaries today called A Christian Manifesto. And he wrote lots of really good books. But he had a ministry in Switzerland Where him and his wife basically ministered to hippies and homeless people and people passing through and they'd bring them in their home They'd feed them. They'd let them stay for a few days. They would teach them theology They would lead them to Christ and that's what they did Their home was just like a way station for people who were travelers and things like that who just kind of lost their way But his book made him really famous and he was one of the greatest minds the christian apologists of this of the last century He was asked to speak at a big european conference in london and he was going to be the keynote speaker on Saturday. So he travels by train all day long, 12 hours. He get, and the train was delayed. And he doesn't get there on Friday night when the conference started. But he doesn't speak until the next day. But he gets there at the place where the conference is being held. And a lot of the guests were in this one part of the building. And they put out cots for everybody in sleeping bags. And, uh, but for Francis Schaeffer, they had the best motel in London. And he went and knocked on the door, and a guy named Doug answered the door and says, hey, how can I help you? He said, well, yeah, I've been traveling all day, and I'm here for the conference. He said, well, the tonight's part of it is over. He said, I don't really have any beds left. He said, but I, I can put you on the floor, and we can roll up a towel, and you can use it as a pillow. And he said, no, sure, no problem. And the, and the guy goes, well, have you eaten? He said, no, I've been on the train all day. I haven't eaten. He said, well, i got some cereal here on the cupboard. So they sat down and ate some cereal together. And then he, Francis Schaefer, the keynote speaker of the conference, sleeps on the floor, doesn't say a word. Just that humble of a guy. The next day, Dr- Doug got in big trouble. <laughs> True story. Anyway, so the, tr- the story transitions here, and you would think that, okay, we've left that whole discourse, and now we're just going to a whole other story, but watch carefully. And they came to Jericho, and then Mark's being redundant on purpose, and as they were leaving Jericho, hint, hint, I want Jericho's kind of important detail here, who was the hero at Jericho. Joshua. What did they do? How did they get Jericho to fall? Yeah, they marched around it the first time, the first day, one time, one time, and on the last day, seven times, and they blew the trumpets and the walls fell down. Oh, by the way, another archaeological fact here. For years skeptics were like, We've been excavating at Jericho. We don't say walls anywhere. We don't say walls anywhere. Because they thought the walls fell down. But then they dug deeper and found that the walls fell down. And they found the walls of Jericho. Oh, well, the Bible's not true. it true. Yeah, it is. Archaeology, science, all that confirms it. But anyway, what Joshua, his Hebrew name is Yeshua. And when you say it in the Greek dialect, it's Jesus or what? Yeah, Jesus, Joshua, it's the same name. It's like Juan and John. It's just pronounced differently. Jesus is the greater Joshua. He's here to make the walls of sin come tumbling down. And so that's, I think, what, what Mark's trying to get here. What's interesting is in the other Gospels, a lot of stuff happens in Jericho. And Mark's like, yeah, Jesus went to Jericho and then he left. But Zacchaeus, remember that story? That happens in Jericho. And there's several other cool stories here. But Mark, he's like, no, we're going to keep moving here, keep moving here. And he's shorter and more concise. So he's leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd. So a crowd's following him. And Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, son of Timaeus. Now, this proves that Mark is talking to a Roman audience because Bartimaeus means son of Timaeus in, in Hebrew. Bar means son of Timaeus. It's just like John's son, William's son, uh, uh, Donald's son. You know, and and if, you were, um, if you were Irish or Scottish, I forget which one, it'd be MacDonald or MacGregor. Mac means son of, and like in English we say son afterwards. In Hebrew, it's bar in front of, bar Whatever, Bartholomew meant son of Tholomew, okay? So anyway, but he has to translate that for them because he's speaking to a non-Jewish audience. And this blind guy is sitting by the roadside. So let, let me ask you two questions here. Was there one blind man or two? Because if you read Matthew 20, verse 30, it says there was two blind men. And it's not like, there are several answers to this question. One theory is, well, there's two separate stories. But the details are so much alike that it has to be, in my opinion, it has to be the same story. So then some people say, oh, well, see, there's a contradiction. The Bible says there, Matthew says there was two blind guys, and Mark says there's one blind guy. See, contradiction in the Bible. No, that doesn't mean that. Just because you don't mention all the number doesn't mean the one wasn't there. It'd be like if I said LeBron James came to town and lost to the Houston Rockets. Oh, LeBron played by himself? There's only one guy on the basketball team? No, you know what I'm talking about, right? Just because I didn't name all five of the players on the team and the bench and everybody like that doesn't mean, if I just mentioned one guy, it doesn't mean the others don't exist. If Mark had said, and only one blind guy talked to Jesus, then we'd have a contradiction. If he doesn't say that. He just happens to mention the guy he thought was most prominent in his story. You have that same thing happen with the demoniacs at at the Gergesenes. One uh, um, says there was two demon-possessed guys. One says there was one. But the guy who says there's one doesn't say there's only one. So just because we tell stories differently, you know, I can say I was at a Christmas party and Chris told this great joke, blah, blah, blah. Oh, so Ashley wasn't there? I didn't say she wasn't there. I just only mentioned Chris. Well, someone else said Chris and Ashley were there. Okay. I'm just telling the part of the story I want you to know. Chris is the funny one. Ashley's not. No, just kidding. Okay. So is this a contradiction? No. Okay. That's blasphemy. So now. This whole conversation where Jesus is stopping and teaching and stopping and teaching is what's, it's what's known as the disciples discourse. He's teaching the disciples everything he wants to know before he's dying, okay? Before he's been teaching to the crowds, teaching the crowds a little bit to the disciples. Now he's on the road to Jerusalem. It's like, okay guys, let's stop and talk. Okay, let's stop and talk. Let me teach you something. And he's doing a discourse all on the way. And if you remember correctly, at the beginning of this discourse, there was a blind man who said, Jesus, son of David, heal me. And he went up and he spit in his eyes (laughs) and then he put mud in his eyes. And the first time he says, what do you see? And he's like, I see men like walking as trees. And then Jesus does it again. And Jesus isn't like he failed the first time. If you remember, go back and listen to the the sermon. Um, He didn't fail. He purposely did it in two stages. And it says, and then he began to teach the disciples. He's like, you guys see things right now, but you're really not seeing the whole picture. And he used this guy as a living illustration. So he starts a discipleship discourse with a blind man, and guess what he's doing here at the end? He's ending with a blind man. Jesus is still teaching object lessons here, right? So watch what happens here. Excuse me. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, "Jesus, Son of David." Okay, he knows who he is. Yeshua, which is Yeshua, Jesus, Joshua. It means Jehovah saves. He sees him as a savior, son of David, which means you are in the lineage of the prophecy that the Messiah would be related to King David. No small fact there. And then he says, have mercy on me. Give me what what I deserve. I don't deserve to be blind. No, he doesn't say that. He says, have mercy on me. What is mercy? It's when God gives you something you don't deserve. He sees himself as, I don't deserve this. I've sinned enough. Maybe I deserve to be blind. I don't know. But please, just show me this kindness, would you, please? And many people in the crowd rebuked him. Hey, shut up. Shut up. Leave the Messiah alone. And they tell him, you, you just shh, be quiet. Be quiet. But he's like, no, no. Don't shh, leave me alone. Son of David, have mercy on me. He yells more like, push me all the way, as a best a blind man could do, right? And he, he's just, I'm determined. I'm persistent that I'm going to have Jesus hear me. So Jesus stopped and said, hey, call him. Tell him to come here. And so they're like, hey, come here, Jesus wants you, Jesus wants you. And take heart, get up, he's calling you. Would you go, would you go? The crowd is so stupid. <laughs> hey, no, don't talk to Jesus, don't talk to Jesus. Oh, oh you do? What talk? Hey, go see Jesus, Cindy, he wants to talk to you now. Just like, come on, could you make up your minds? You know, let me tell you, you need to ignore the crowd and listen to Jesus. You know what's a sad reality? The University of Kentucky did a study, and they, and they found out that most people, today more than ever, their beliefs are determined by the, their friends around them, not by their research of what they, believe, what they believe to be true. It's just sad. It's like you can take someone who says, yeah, I believe the Bible. I believe Jesus died, the man. Then you put them in a college setting. It's like, oh, nobody else believes this? I'm the only one? Oh, well, I don't know. Maybe it's not that important. I don't know. And the next thing you know, they're like, oh, I don't believe any of that stuff. It's like you didn't form your opinion because of research. You po- formed your opinion because of peer pressure. It's just like your parents used to tell you: if if all your friends jumped off a cliff, would you, would you do that too? Right? It, it's just crazy. We follow like lemmings. We just follow the crowd, and our, our opinion tends to be based on what around us. And no one seems to have the courage to say, you know what? I don't care if you all are wrong. I know. I know what's true. You can say a boy is a girl if you want to all day long. I can see it's a boy. You can say two plus two is forty-seven all day long. I know it's four. And the Bible says in the last days, good will become evil and evil become good. And the world gets flipped upside down and just common sense is like out the window. And you you just, young people especially, if you're under 30, let me just tell you, if you feel all alone with what you believe, get used to it. The crowd is so fickle. Oh, don't talk to Jesus. Don't talk to Jesus. What? Oh, yeah, go talk to Jesus. Would you hurry up and go talk to Jesus? Do you see how foolish it is? And it's just crazy how this works out. But the crowd, don't listen to the crowd. And then... I don't know how much, what to read into this, throwing off his cloak. The only thing, I, 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 don't, I, don't, know, I don't want to get into spiritualizing everything, and the cloak represents this. And represents all I know is the last guy that came to Jesus with a cloak on was the rich young ruler who was unwilling to throw even that off. And this guy, the only thing he owns, he's like, goes to Jesus. And he doesn't just, he may be blind, but his legs work perfectly fine. He hops up and he comes to Jesus, which is what really all of us need to do. We need to throw off what's holding us off from coming to Jesus. We need to go immediately to him, and he's the one that needs to, will save us. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Sound familiar? The disciples came to Jesus and asked the same. Jesus, they're like, well, would you, we just want you to do something for us. We want you to put us on the right hand and left hand. He's like, okay. The they're like, before they said that, they said, Jesus, we want you to do something for us. We don't want to tell you what it is, just would you do it, whatever we ask you? He's like, okay, what do you want me to do for you? And Mark puts the exact same words in this story to connect it to the other story. Here's the guys who are being selfish and realize that they they think they deserve to be exalted. Here's the blind man who knows I don't deserve anything. Would you please have mercy on me? So that's what he said to them in verse 36, the exact same words. And this guy's request is, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. See, we know another detail now. He wasn't born blind. He had sight. He lost it. He wants to recover his sight. And he realized, and that's why I think that he, he's asking for mercy, because who knows what caused his blindness. Maybe it's something that he did. Um, next verse says, verse 52, and says, Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Jesus heals them. No partial healing, just does what Jesus always does. If Jesus ever does a partial healing, it's because he's trying to teach something. And then, of course, Mark's favorite word, 42 times in the gospel, and immediately he recovered his sight, and he followed him. He became a follower of Jesus when he was healed. You know, really, there's three blind men in this story. Just like three blind mice, there's three blind men here. And all three of these men come to Jesus with the request. All three are opposed by the crowd around them and make some people mad. Jesus asked them both, all three of them, what do you want me to do for you? James and John are asking for glory. They want to be exalted. They want high position. The blind man asks for mercy. He wants, he knows he doesn't deserve anything from Jesus. James and John had eyesight, but they lacked insight Bartimaeus lacked eyesight, but he had perfect insight. He saw things much more clearly than the disciples did. James and John, they feel they're entitled to what they're about to ask for more than other disciples. Bartimaeus feels totally unworthy to ask of anything. James and John are still unable to see what Jesus is saying after this is all said and done. But Bartimaeus, he left not not only seeing, but he left seeing Jesus clearly. He knew clearly who Jesus was. Do you know Jesus this morning? You see, if you're not a true Christian, if you're not a Christian, the Bible refers to you as blind. And blind men can't see what they don't know. They don't know what what they're missing. And you may think you're fine. I'm, I'm groping my way around. I'm fine. I don't need anything. I don't need anybody. And you really don't know what you're missing when you're blind. The scripture says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that the God of this world, who is the God of this world? Satan. Satan is the God of this world. If you wonder why the world's such a mess, do not blame God. (laughs) Blame Satan. God put Adam and Eve in what kind of conditions? Paradise. They rejected God's authority and said, we will listen to Satan. Satan goes, okay, great. I will run this world now. And what has he done? He's the one that's causing world violence. He's the one that's causing prostitution and and, uh, uh, human trafficking. He's the one that's causing the drug problems. He's the one causing all that. Do not blame God. God in heaven, blame the God of this world. Jesus says, the son of man came to seek and to save that which lost. Jesus, Satan has come but to, to steal, to kill, and destroy. Do not blame your heavenly father. He's the one that said, hey, I, I wanted to rule your life, but you guys won't let me. You kicked me out of your schools. You kicked me out of your universities. You kicked me out of your culture. You don't even want to say my name in public because it's against the law. And yet you want, you want to blame me for all the bad stuff that's happening. Not even fair. Not even close to fair. Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. If you're an unbeliever, you're, I'm not knocking you. I was an unbeliever too. I was only nine years old when I got saved. And it was like, wow. It was like a whole nother level of sense opened up. And, and why did Satan do this? To keep them from seeing. He doesn't want you to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. First Timothy 3.16 says, God became flesh and dwelt among us, I'm sorry, that's that's John chapter one. First Timothy, God took on human form. He died for us. The gospel is God loved you so much that he became the human sacrifice to take your place. All the sins you ever And if you're listening to what I'm saying, if you're hearing the gospel, the light is trying to peek in. And you can either be like this, no, no, I don't want to see the light. Or you can open your eyes to the light and God will take away the blindness. Jesus died for you. He gave his life for you. Have you given your life to him? Do you know of a time and a place where you've done that, where you surrendered, like we sang earlier, I surrender, and you give everything to Jesus? Or are you holding something back? I would like to invite everyone here this morning to just bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're a believer, please pray that that the Holy Spirit of God would remove the blindness from people's eyes. And if you're not a believer, if you're not sure, let me just have a conversation with you and just talk to the Lord. You're on your own. You know you're a sinner. As I talk about sin, probably specific sins come to mind. That's not just your conscience. That's the Holy Spirit of God convicting you of that. That's what He does. He convicts of sin. And you need to be aware that there will be a punishment for your sin. You will face God as your judge. He showed mercy on the cross, but if you reject it, there will be none at Judgment Day. There will be no second chance. It's a point on man once to die, and after this, the judgment. You could avoid that judgment right now by giving your life to Christ. You could pray a prayer something like this, Lord Jesus, I, I know I'm a sinner. I know the bad things I have done. I pray that you would forgive me of all of them because you paid for them on the cross. Because you gave your life to me, I give all of my life to you, and I make you the Lord of my life and the Savior of my soul. Thank you for forgiving me in your name. If you, if you made that decision, I mean, I would love to have a conversation with you about your next steps as a new child of God. And uh, if you're watching online, again, this is my cell phone number. Please contact me. I'd love to have a conversation with you. All right, we're going to do a question and answer. Amanda, would you like to help me with that? So send in your questions now if you haven't already. Uh, Amanda, there is one question that I opened earlier. So there we go. I'll I'm, I'm open it for you right there. And this is a question we get four times a year. Four times a year. Here we go.
2: Okay, last one. Okay, yeah. yeah. Will we see our deceased pets in heaven?
0: All right, we get that question often. Right? How many of you have you ever heard that question before? Okay, good question. Obviously, people really love their pets. Okay, I love my dog. Okay, so does the Bible have book, chapter, and verse about this? No, it doesn't say anything specifically. One thing that we do know is that there will be animals in heaven. Okay, so it talks about animals. It names all kinds of animals in heaven and in the kingdom. So some people could bridge the gap saying, okay, if animals are here on earth and animals in heaven, then my dog will be in heaven. And usually people are all about, it's their dogs in heaven. Nobody cares about their cats. We all know all cats burn in hell. Just that, that's just true. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> amen. All right. The only thing I get an amen about all morning long. <laughs> anyway, so, but can we speculate that our dog will be in heaven? I would say no, because that would require that your, your, your animal has a living soul And Ecclesiastes talks about your dog has a spirit, but only humans have a living soul. So to bridge that gap to eternity, I think would require a a, a soul. And dogs and cats don't have that, unfortunately. But will there be a dog in heaven that will remind you of your dog? Go for it. Yes.
2: Is it possible that James and John wanted to be close to Jesus, the one they loved? Or is it 100% certain they only
0: wanted power? Good question. Um. So we can connect the dots that Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for, okay? Because if it was, hey, Jesus, we just want to be close to you. He'd be like, great, great, well, you can be close to me. But he's like, no, you guys don't have no clue what you're asking for. And he said, that's why he goes into the whole thing about the cup and the baptism, because what they were asking for was not even close. And of course, the other passage tells us that they are arguing along the way about who's the greatest. So I don't think we can even give it the benefit of the doubt on this one. Right? There's so much evidence against the disciples for being jerks, and wanting to be exalted, uh, that I don't even give him any r- wiggle room on that.
2: There are some scholars that interpret that this is talking about being crucified on the right or left hand side of Jesus. Yeah. The parallel is there.
0: Yeah, that's, that's what I mentioned earlier. I don't want to say that I know for sure that's what he's talking about. But I, I think it was a type that, that it was both. Good, but that's a good observation.
2: When Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise, does that mean that when Jesus died, he went to heaven and then came back to earth?
0: No. Um, so, like, the, uh, some of the catechisms talks about how Jesus descended into hell. And people misinterpret that because what does hell mean at times? It means the grave. He descended the grave. But also, we have to take the teaching that Jesus did, which some people think is a parable. I don't the rich man and Lazarus. I don't think it's a parable because Jesus doesn't name people in parables. So the rich man went to Hades and Lazarus was on the other side and there was a great gulf fixed, okay? And he was in what's called Abraham's bosom or in the arms of Abraham. And it's, they could see each other, okay? But then First Peter, I think it is, says that Jesus, when he died, he descended into the lower parts of earth and led captivity captive. He went down... so. People before the resurrection of Jesus that died, they either went to, they went to the good side of Hades or the bad side of Hades. And this side was torment and this side was blessing. And so this is the temporary holding spot until the resurrection. And remember, there, Daniel says there's two resurrections. There's the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the dead unto eternal judgment. So anybody who died prior to the resurrection was, was down there in Hades. And I don't know that it's physically in the center of the earth. I think it's in another dimension, but that's another subject. So when Jesus was victorious, he went down and led all the people on the Abraham side to heaven, and, and now that's where they are. But people who are dead are still on the Hades side, and at the great white throne, they will be resurrected and be put in bodies like we were, but not glorified bodies, but restored to old bodies, and then they'll be cast into the lake of fire. So there's different types of hell. And so what happens is like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons say, see, this is only referring to the grave. No, no, that's just one aspect of it. But the grave is a symbol of eternal death and separation from God. Because then you go to Revelation chapter 20. What did you do with death and hell were cast into the lake of fire? If you think hell is only the grave, then what happens when the grave was cast into the lake of fire? Interpret that, but they, they can't. Um, so, I chased a the rabbit there. What was the actual question again? Um. Sorry. Sorry. I think I answered. Does
2: that mean, okay, today you will be with me in paradise? Does okay. that mean that when Jesus died, he went to heaven and then came back? So to he her?
0: didn't go to heaven, like the eternal kingdom, he went to Abraham's bosom and led everybody there out. So that's what he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So Abraham's bosom is also called paradise. Exactly. Exactly. That's my interpretation of it. I believe Abraham's bosom is paradise. It's not he didn't say today you'll be with me in heaven or today you'll be with me in the kingdom. You'll be with me in the temporary holding spot and you and me will go down and get everybody and take them out,
1: okay? All
2: right, Lakers aren't going to the playoffs.
0: That's right, they're out, they are eliminated.
2: In the stories of kings granting favors to their subjects, King Xerxes to Esther, Herod to Herodias's daughter, the king says, whatever you ask of me, I will give to you, up to half the kingdom. Oh, yeah. Practically carte blanche. Do you think there's a similarity here to how James and John are approaching their request, acknowledging him as a ruler and asking for a big favor?
0: Yeah, I think it's a great option. Is that Patrick? No, it's uh, not. Okay. You, well, you can say it, it is? I don't know. Do they want to be saying it? Anyway. <laughs> All right. Good observation, whoever you are. Wink, wink. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's a parallel to that. There's also one in First Kings where they went before someone and said, give us whatever we want with blank checks. So there's like, there's a pattern for it in scripture. And I think it does acknowledge that he has the, right, the ability to give it. Of course, then Jesus said, I don't. It's not mine to give. So... That was pretty interesting. He's saying, I'm being submissive to my Heavenly Father. Why don't you get a clue and be submissive also and don't ask for those kind of things? Good. Is that it? All right, cool.